Is Chechnya's Ramzan Kadyrov on his way out, and what might this mean? And more to the point, what does Kadyrov's career tell us about the new breed of, let's call them conflict entrepreneurs, in Russia? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. Now before I get started on Ramzan Kadyrov, just a couple of housekeeping points. First of all, for patrons... Patreon is a very, very handy platform, but it does have its little quirks, shall we say. And I recently heard from three patrons who, without any kind of warning or notice, have essentially been dropped off their patronage of In Moscow Shadows. Now, I can't see any particular rhyme or reason. Two of them were paying monthly, one of them was paying annually, they weren't all paying in the same currency, etc., etc. But nonetheless, just to say that uh, if you are... A patron who hasn't received notifications of late, do just check whether or not uh, the system has decided that you've you've had enough. And on the other hand, of course, if you did drop just simply because you were unwilling or unable to continue to provide support, of course, I'm sorry to see you go, but thanks very much for your support up to now. And finally, also for patrons, if you haven't already noticed, you should have got a notification, but I'm going to be pulling together another one of the patrons-only question-and-answer episodes. So if you have a question you want to send my way, now's the time to do it. The second thing is something that, again, was, was raised by a patron simply because of the fact that I tend to start my communications with comrades and was saying, look, you appreciate it's probably just a bit of light-hearted whimsy, but nonetheless, for someone whose background was in the old Soviet Union, this was a little bit jarring. And look, I mean, I think that's fair comment, and I think this is one reason why I wanted to address it, because it's not just simply about how I choose to address people. It's also, I think, a, a wider point. The reason I use comrades is, yes, in part it is, exactly, it is light-hearted whimsy. And rather than saying, I don't know, friends, patrons, fellow human beings, or whatever. But it also, I think, speaks to this question of, look, the fact that, first of all, the word comrades used in this sense, it is not simply a Soviet thing. It actually speaks back to a tradition of the left that that, that is much broader. And I have a deep and visceral resistance to allowing whether it was the Soviet era or indeed today's Putin's Russia, to taint and censor language and our understanding of the world. I mean, this this also speaks, after all, to the whole question nowadays of sort of cancelling or abandoning whole canons, not just words, whether it's Tchaikovsky or whether it's Dostoevsky or whatever. My view is quite simple. If we allow past misuses and misdeeds to, in effect, shape our own language and culture. Firstly, we are actually boosting Putin's propaganda because it's used as evidence that uh, the outside world is intrinsically Russophobic and therefore all Russians should feel themselves within a beleaguered fortress and pull together. But perhaps much more importantly, I would say it is ahistorical and it is demeaning to us. The answer is not to surrender these terms, these cultural icons and these notions, but to reclaim them. I refuse to think that the word comrade can and should be regarded simply as a sign of the worst of the Soviet experience, any more than I think that listening to Tchaikovsky today makes you some kind of bedfellow of Russian imperialism. Now, look, I'm not trying to tell you what you should be doing. I'm just trying to explain that when I'm using these terms, it's not that I'm actually saying that the Soviet Union was indeed a worker's paradise where everyone lived together in in harmony, any more than I'm trying to deny that, obviously, 
Putin's Russia seeks to mobilize the convenient elements of the Russian cultural canon to its own advantage. It's just that we shouldn't, shall I say, collaborate with that notion. Anyway, let me climb off my soapbox now and get on to the actual meat of this podcast. So, Kadyrov and the conflict entrepreneurs. Ramzan Kadyrov, the, the deeply unpleasant and violent warlord come monarch, frankly, of Chechnya, is for me, I would say, one of the most striking examples of the conflict entrepreneurs that post-Soviet Russia, and particularly Putin's Russia, uh, has thrown up. Now, I will talk about the concept of conflict entrepreneurs more broadly after the break, but instead, well, we need to appreciate the degree to which Chechnya under Kadyrov has essentially become an oppressive sultanate. In many ways, the irony is that in order to win the Second Chechen War, Putin, in effect, granted Chechnya the independence it had wanted, but independence de facto, and an independence that is paid for by Moscow. The overwhelming majority, after all, of the funds that, that head into Chechnya are come from the federal treasury, and Kadyrov uses them for his vanity projects, including one of the largest mosques in Europe, named after his dad, as well as buying off all the other members of the elite, maintaining his own personal security forces who may wear Russian military or National Guard uniforms, but are by no means controlled from Moscow, and generally creating a sort of personalistic regime which is based upon flattery, violence and exploitation. I mean, if you really want a, a kind of specific and, and frankly quite horrific example, you know, recently there was the report that Ramzan's younger 15-year-old son, Adam, had actually beat up a man by the name of Nikita Juravel, who had been charged with burning a copy of the Quran. While Juravel was in a holding facility in Grozny. So in other words, actually, you know, it's not just simply they, they bumped into each other in the street, but Adam went specifically to go there and presumably with the assistance of, of the prison warders and so forth, but anyway, duffed up this, this guy. And what we really should consider to be a crime and a sin was presented by, for example, Adam Delimkanov, of whom more in a moment, Chechnya's deputy at the State Duma, you know, he presented this as, quote, that, that uh, he showed an example of patriotism and a desire to protect the, uh, the religion and our sacred objects. That this means that, in fact, we should consider Adam Delimkanov as, again, quote, as having acted very humanely by letting him live. People deserve the harshest punishments for these actions. So, in other words, the youngest son of the dictator of Chechnya uses his position to go into a prison, beat up a presumably uh, suitably con constrained political prisoner, in effect, and that is heralded as a great example of patriotism. Now, I, I dwell on that because it's, it's just simply an example of the daily litany not just of arbitrary violence conducted by the Chechen state, which we have to recognise makes the rest of Putin's Russia look like a model law-based state. Anyway, this, you know, it's, it's an example of, of the arbitrary violence, but also of the personalistic nature of power, the importance of constant flattery of Kadyrov and, and his clan, and generally the degree to which this is a medieval state. But as I said, it's a medieval state that is paid for by Moscow. And Kadyrov has, time and time again, essentially held Moscow to ransom. Whenever it looks as if the massive federal flows of money towards Grozny might be curtailed, that's when Kadyrov causes trouble. Sometimes he muses about stepping down, retiring, becoming just a common soul, foot soldier or whatever, because he knows full well that Moscow has convinced himself, quite possibly wrongly, but we'll, we'll address that later, um, that essentially Kadyrov is indispensable, that he's the only man who keeps Chechnya under control and therefore avoids the, for them, terrifying prospect of a third Chechen war. 
So, you know, he, he muses about stepping down, more or less saying, so, Moscow, you think you've got someone else who could run this place? Or else, actually, he becomes even more troublesome than that. I mean, in, in 2018, for example, Chechen forces launched an incursion into neighbouring Ingushetia, the Galanchoj region, actually suggesting that this was historically always theirs. I mean, so, in effect, Kadyrov invaded another part of the Russian Federation to make a point. And again, this is what makes him a conflict entrepreneur, someone who's able to take and, in effect, monetize his role within a conflict. Kadyrov also refused to mobilize on Chechen territory back in September of last year, when the rest of the Russian Federation was, was busy rounding up 40-year-old you know, bus drivers and whatever to fight its war. He actually said that he would not mobilize on, on Chechnya. I mean, this is a pretty obvious challenge to Moscow. And although, yes, he then has sent his Chechen forces in, uh, including particularly the, the so-called Akhmat battalion, but the truth of the matter is that in the main, he has also made damn sure that his forces in Ukraine don't actually have to do any of this nasty fighting and dying business. They essentially concentrate more on dramatic social media videos, which is one of the reasons why they are regarded with what was once a certain degree of amusement, but increasingly is disdain and outright hostility by the rest of the Russian forces, because they are essentially just cosplaying war fighting rather than anything else. Why is this? Well, the Kadyrovtsi, these you know, essentially personally sworn soldiers of his, they are the bedrock of his control of Chechnya. So in other words, if he allows them to be decimated in Ukraine, that immediately, seriously and directly challenges his position at home. So he's clearly not going to allow that. So he will loudly proclaim his loyalty, his enthusiasm to take on whatever task, to basically suggest that, well, if you unleashed me, we'd, we'd be dining in Kiev in a few days and such like. But in practice, he's going to make damn sure that he keeps his guys safe. Anyway, we've now had, once again, claims that he is seriously ill, that he's in a coma and may well even die. Look, we have to be careful of the sources here, not least because there have been constant claims that Kadyrov is seriously ill, and they tended to come from, well, the Chechen opposition, or increasingly these days, the Ukrainians. That said, this time there have been plausible suggestions that he is ill. Reportedly, a kidney specialist was brought in from Abu Dhabi last year, and there have been suggestions that an attempted kidney transplant went wrong. Um, for that matter, again, showing the sort of medieval barbarity of the regime, there are rumours that he was poisoned, but also rumours that he had his personal physician, Elkan Suleimanov, buried alive, presumably because of a lack of results. Now, that's something that uh, Western healthcare systems don't offer. When Dmitry Peskov, the presidential, Putin's presidential spokesman, was asked about this, he gave a very non-reply. He said, we have no information on this. In any case, the presidential administration can hardly give out health certificates, so we have nothing to tell you here. Now, such an artful non-answer is in itself, I would suggest, a pretty clear admission that there is something wrong, at least. Because otherwise, he'd have said, no, of course not. As far as we're concerned, Kadyrov is, is as healthy as it comes. But as I said, we need to be a little bit cautious. In March of last year, for example, after the most recent bout of such tales, Kadyrov rather cheekily posted on social media, which is his main way of interacting with the outside world, to those who are entertaining themselves with the hope that I'm incurably ill, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Now, more recently, we've seen videos of him ostensibly just simply visiting in Moscow's Central Clinical Hospital and a, a slew of social media posts, including one in which he, he sincerely congratulates my dear brother Denis Bushilin on taking office as head of the Donetsk People's Republic. And, well, more generally, you know, there's been this attempt to create a little sort of mini flurry of apparent activity, but again, it's all remote. It's all on things like social media, which don't actually tell us much. You know, we've seen videos of him out for a walk in the woods, but again, we don't know if that video was actually recorded a month or a year ago. 
Now, these most recent claims originated with the Ukrainians, especially their intelligence community. I mean, previously, military intelligence chief Kirilo Budanov had also asserted that Kadyrov was suffering from what he called excessive drug use, which, which raised an interesting question for me as what the what appropriate drug use was. But anyway, never mind. And look, the Ukrainians clearly have every reason to use every opportunity they can to try and create tensions within the Russian system. They want to, you know, to the same way as they, they, they talk up issues of Putin's ill health, they want precisely to create a sense that there is kind of a, an imminent potential crisis at home because this, in its own way, actually also generates the sort of tensions which may lead to a political crisis. So, yes, of course, they're going to cast doubt on Kadyrov's health, his whereabouts, and his general capacity to govern. But there does seem to be a bit more to it this time. So, you know, although we haven't had to treat it with caution, let's just suggest that it is true that Kadyrov, well, he may be dead, but, you know, otherwise he's dying or faces simply being indefinitely and severely incapacitated. The question is, what then does that mean for Chechnya? And for that matter, what does it mean for, for Russia more generally? Now, presumably, Moscow would be desperate for a smooth, easy succession. Someone else, ideally, someone who's a little bit more biddable, but anyway, who could basically fill that role of Kadyrov's and most, most importantly of all, keep the lid on the Chechen cauldron. The thing is, who could it be? Now, Kadyrov himself had clearly been promoting his eldest son, Ahmad, as his next putative successor, again, you know, as this sultanate becomes increasingly hereditary. The thing is, though, although Ahmad has been presented to Putin and reportedly blooded in battle, he's 17 years old. He is in no way, either legally or politically plausibly, able to become Kadyrov's successor. But what he could do is provide some kind of totemic legitimacy to what is in effect a regency. Now, whether or not he actually in, you know, would in due course inherit the power is another matter. But the point is, in the short term, it could be presented as the, that kind of provides the, the Kadyrov stamp of authority to a successor. Now, there are three mo more obvious sort of potential candidates, one of whom is, is something these days of an outsider. It's quite noteworthy that when Ahmad was in, presented to Putin, he was being chaperoned by Ruslan Edelgeriev. Now, Edelgeriev is definitely a former insider in Kadyrov's administration and clearly has uh, Kadyrov's confidence. He, but he's now actually presidential advisor in Moscow on climate affairs and by all accounts actually has a pretty good relationship with Putin and is well regarded in the Kremlin. I mean, at the very least, we can say that he actually understands how things work in Moscow. So in that respect, the hope would be that he's someone who can bridge Grozny and Moscow. But the trouble is he has been out of Chechnya for some time. And look, in fairness, pretty much like every other Chechen politician, certainly has his share of enemies. And he is vulnerable to the claim that he's just simply Moscow's man that he has, in effect, abandoned his, his Chechen roots. Whether that's true or false doesn't really matter when it comes to political smears. It's are they plausible? And I think they would be. Now, the irony is that the second candidate also spends most of his time these days in Moscow, but nonetheless can still probably make a better case of being you know, a proper Grozny man. And that would be Adam Delimikhanov, whom I mentioned. Now, he's a... You know, not just parliamentarian in, in Moscow, he's also a cousin of Kadyrov's. He is the notional commander of the Chechen National Guard, the, the, the Kadyrovsi. And indeed, it's worth noting, he is a genuine man with a golden gun. Kadyrov presented him with a gold-plated pistol, I presume a, a Makarov, and likely for his prowess in wiping out Kadyrov's personal enemies. This is a man who actually has been directly accused of being involved in the assassinations of other Chechens opposed to Kadyrov. So he's certainly a busy chap. But as I say, I mean, I think the thing is, these days he's probably regarded more as a politician than the sort of person who can get his hands dirty. Uh, one can wonder, well, actually, how charismatic he is. 
he's he's a good behind the scenes operator in in Moscow and absolutely I mean his role is in effect to, to be Chechnya's ambassador I think is the best way of putting it with with the the Russian government but on the other hand his power base especially outside of Kadyrov's own tape or clan the Benoy is is severely limited the third possible candidate is the speaker of the Chechen parliament Magomed Daudov whom Kadyrov himself dubbed Lord for his supposed smartness of attire when he first met him. Apparently he was wearing a black suit and a white shirt, which, which made him look like an English Lord, apparently. Now, Daudov is another one of these fighters-turned-politicians, and he's often described as the second most powerful man in Chechnya. But the reason why I wouldn't present him as a or the front-runner to succeed Kadyrov is because of just how far Daudov's power is precisely as Kadyrov's vicar on earth and also the bearer of his malice. I mean, Daudov often comes, you know, he made all kinds of threats to Navalny, had a possible role in the murder of Boris Nemtsov in 2015 and so forth. Now, Daudov essentially manages domestic affairs the same way as Delimkhanov handles kind of foreign relations, including Moscow. But as I said, He's essentially doing this as the vessel of Kadyrov's power, rather than, I would suggest, than that he has a fully-fledged power base his own. I mean, obviously he has his, his clients and such like, but he's just not quite uh, at that point where he has the independent authority. And apart from that, look, I mean, there's a lot of other slightly more marginal figures, or, or rather people who have a power base, but they don't necessarily have the kind of breadth of support that really stepping into such an, uh, an all-important position would, would require. There are political figures like Abu Zaid Vismuradov, also known as Patriot, who is the deputy chair of the Chechen government, and one of his greatest strengths has always been a bit as a gatekeeper in terms of controlling access to Kadyrov. Again, an incredibly powerful position while Kadyrov is the boss, but does it actually give you the political importance to be able to replace him? Uncertain. There's business people like Mofsadi Aluyev, who he manages the Russian Special Forces University, which is actually a Chechen venture, and in many ways really a, a way of taking the current need, not just for bodyguards, but also for territorial defence forces and such like, and essentially making that into a money-making venture for, for Chechnya. This obviously does give him a, a particular connection with the Chechen special forces. But again, you know, essentially, more than anything else, Aloyev is a business person rather than anything else. Conversely, one can look at the side of the Kadyrovtsi. Someone like, say, Apti Alaudinov. Now, he's the current commander of the Ahmad Battalion, deployed in Ukraine, and also, incidentally, the guy who carried out that 2018 incursion into Ingushetia on, on Kadyrov's orders. Given, though, that uh, Aloudinov was reportedly recently poisoned, though, he certainly clearly also has his detractors. So, but in general, though, none of these quite strike me as exactly the person with the sufficient capacity themselves as one individual to fill this increasingly outsized space that Kadyrov has carved for himself. Now look, you know, of course, someone can simply emerge from, from this political scrum. Moscow could reach in and try and anoint a chosen successor with a, a mix of, of threats and also you know, the promise of continued funding. Carrot and sticks is always the sort of classic imperial tool. However, after almost 20 years of the Kadyrov dynasty, it's, it's, it's unclear just how successful a successor would be in controlling this potentially unruly region. See, on, on the one hand, you know, it could indeed be a very neat, smooth transition. You, after all, have had 20 years of building a, a very sort of distinct power vertical within Chechnya with a lot of people who have a status quo in keeping the situation running which basically means keeping the money flowing from Moscow. And it, it could well be that, in fact, there's scarcely a ripple. But what if there's not? What if, in fact, you know, for example, Moscow tries to impose a candidate like Edel Gadiev, 
and this actually generates a pushback from local elites. What if, in fact, we see, for example, divisions within the Kadirotsi, as some commit themselves to one contender and some for the other? You know, the, the possibility of a descent into violence cannot be ignored and certainly is at the forefront of Moscow's thinking. You know, the rebel movement, such as it was, well, that's basically been destroyed or displaced. You know, where are the Chechen rebels? They're in Georgia, they're in Turkey, they're elsewhere in Europe. You know, they basically do not anymore exist in Chechnya. But on the other hand, again, if there is an opportunity, what we've seen time and time again through Chechnya's struggle for freedom from Moscow's rule, well, Russian rule, actually, because it also included the period when it was Tsarist and under, under St. Petersburg. But what happens is essentially that whenever the central authority looks weak, that's when nationalist pressure is spawned. And in this case, central authority means not just Moscow, which is clearly rather busy, but also Grozny. So new freedom fighters could emerge from the cities, from the villages, from the mountains. And as I said, this has been Moscow's terror and helps explain the extraordinary latitude that Kadyrov had been granted through his reign, allowing him to make this his own private sultanate. Now, if a post-Kadyrov Chechnya is indeed stable, then Moscow, given that it has other things it wants to spend its money on, might well be tempted to take advantage of this and begin to reduce the, the eye-wateringly huge amounts of money that flow from the federal treasury to Grozny and which have been used, as I said, for all these various vanity projects as well as controlling the elite. And the irony is that, in fact, this could even in itself generate precisely the kind of tensions, rivalries and I I instability that Moscow had actually been counting on, on having avoided. So one way or the other, Chechnya could, could once again become a problem. So then what happens? I mean, this is a really serious strategic challenge for Putin. When 97% or thereabouts of your ground forces are committed to Ukraine one way or the other, then how are you then also going to fight a counterinsurgency war in Grozny? Well, in, in, in Chechnya as a whole. Do you rely entirely on the National Guard? Which, okay, they are no longer committed in any sort of particular level in Ukraine, but nonetheless, on their own, without the support of the military, other than just Air Force and the like, would they actually be up to the job? Especially if, in fact, they're, they're up against the Kadirutsi, who have, after all, been trained and equipped by the Russian state. Viktor Zolotov, the commander of the National Guard, has been promised all these extra you know, tanks and artillery pieces but he doesn't have them so far, and Rosgvardia hasn't particularly covered itself in glory of late. And more to the point, yes, there are the so-called interior troops within Rosgvardia, but also, you know, it would have to rely on large numbers of other forces, particularly the Amon riot police and the Sober special operations or police units, kind of SWAT teams. If you are taking these units away from their basing locations all around Russia and sending them to Chechnya, you're doing two things. First of all, you're actually weakening your on-the-ground public order forces in Russia as a whole at a time of increasing public tension, particularly if we're heading as we head towards the 2024 presidential elections. And secondly, you are also likely to alienate anger as well as uh, kill many of these Amon forces. You're actually therefore going to risk demoralizing them, disenchanting them, at the very time you might well be needing them all the more. So, you know, for all these reasons, this clearly is something that actually could, could become a real headache for the Kremlin. What happens if Putin is faced with a choice of either withdrawing some of his forces from Ukraine in order to suppress a rising in Chechnya or losing Chechnya? Which does he choose? I mean, more to the point, could he even actually bring himself to choose at all? We, we know that his track record is, after all, that when he's faced with very tough decisions, he hesitates and hedges and usually then has some kind of decision forced on him too late, too badly and by events. 
One could imagine a situation in which he actually tries to hedge his bets, does both, pulls some forces from Ukraine, enough to make a difference to the fighting there, but not enough to actually grant him victory in a third Chechen war. Which raises the interesting irony of whether or not Ramzan Kadyrov's last legacy might actually be to grant Ukraine a better chance of victory against Moscow. I mean, look, this is a particular, um, I would suggest, extreme scenario, but it's worth playing out, not just because it may happen, but also because this is exactly the kind of scenario that they will be thinking about in Moscow. I mean, this is the thing that often struck me. I mean, my view was that if Moscow, you know, in times before the war, if Moscow had really wanted to remove Kadyrov, they could have done so. They could have arrested him at some point while he was in, in Moscow, you know, to, to get one more medal or anything like that. They could have found some, some suitable Chechen, again, with the promise that at least for the, in the short term, the money would keep flowing. I reckon that they could have handled this. I mean, I think this is it. The Russians are very much prisoners of their own literature. They all at school and everywhere else were exposed to all the, these, these tales of the indomitable Chechens, the, the wily, dangerous Chechen who, once he's given his blood oath, will hold that above everything else. And there is this sense that you, you take down Kadyrov and all of these people who've sworn an oath to him, they will be sort of swarming to Moscow. And you'll have this sort of everything from Kadyrovtsi to Chechen organized crime descending on Moscow to cause havoc. I really don't think that that would have been the case. I think that we've increasingly seen that a Chechen elite, which in many ways did come from turncoats who broke away from the rebel movement, especially in fairness, as the rebel movement stopped being nationalist so much as jihadist, and we saw an increasing element of, of, of extreme Islam become present there. But anyway, you know, these lean fighters have become fat and lazy kleptocrats like everyone else. I think they would have taken a deal. But you know, I don't think Moscow was willing to think of the Chechens in those terms. Well, that moment, I suggest, to a degree has, has come and gone. They are more likely now to be faced with a decision which will be forced upon them rather than one that they can take in a time and a way of their own choosing. And I think it's going to be really interesting. And as I say, I don't know if Kadyrov is dead or is dying, but this looks a lot more serious, a lot more plausible than the, the, the previous times we, we've heard these kind of tales. So we'll wait and see. Anyway, enough about Kadyrov and Chechnya. What I want to do is, after the break, I want to talk about this concept more about the conflict entrepreneurs and why, unfortunately, they matter in Russia today and they will, in my opinion, be a force for continuing the war. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. The Russian sociologist Vadim Volkov came up with a brilliant concept that was then published in English as Violent Entrepreneurs in 2002 by Cornell University Press, in which what he did was he looked at all the discussions about the rise of the Mafia in post-Soviet Russia and very much framed it in terms of the so-called violent entrepreneurs, people who have learnt how to monetize the capacity to use or to threaten violence in a system which is unable to control that kind of access and cannot also guarantee protection for individuals. Now this, I think, is, is a really interesting term that can also be converted out to talk about conflict entrepreneurs. People who basically use the exigencies of a conflict and find ways of monetizing that. And as a result, 
essentially, in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, it very much becomes in their interests either to keep that conflict going or at least keep the, con the threat of that conflict going. So again, it's, it, it, it's conflict or the threat of it. Now, Kadyrov was very much someone who could leverage the constant fear in Moscow that Chechnya could once again explode and it would find itself in a new Chechen war, which would be both you know, devastating, obviously, for many lives, not that the Kremlin cares for that, but also politically deeply disadvantageous, given that part of the whole Putin legitimacy myth was that this is the man who tamed the, the barbarous Chechens. So that was something that, that Kadyrov could constantly leverage, not only his capacity to use violence, whether it was killing individuals like Boris Nemtsov, or more broadly, sending an incursion in, into Ingushetia, but above all, it, it was about the, sort of the fact that I'm also the, the only person who can actually keep a conflict from happening. Likewise, Kadyrov's dear brother, Denis Bushilin, and the other satraps of the you know, occupied Donbass, you know, ever since 2014, they likewise have been able to enrich themselves and build up their power bases precisely because they were in the middle of an undeclared conflict and they were able to both tap into the resources that the center was providing to keep that conflict going, but also acquire disproportionate political impact because of the fact that they were in a position to basically modify and influence the, the, the process of the conflict one way or the other. Yevgeny Prigozhin of blessed memory, again, another one of these classic conflict entrepreneurs. I mean, up to 2013, you know, he was just one more businessman on the make, who with a certain degree of Kremlin patronage, who'd worked out how to essentially embezzle freely from, from federal funds while providing certain services, even if not necessarily at a particularly high level. But once the Kremlin had actually induced him to form Wagner, I mean, you must remember, he was originally resistant to the idea. But once that had happened, he became a conflict entrepreneur because it was in his interests for there to be conflicts, because that obviously made Wagner a much more viable proposition. Whether we're talking Donbass, whether we're talking Syria, whether we're talking the conflicts of Africa, or now when we're talking about Ukraine, you know, all of these became market opportunities, and that meant that he had a real incentive to find, inflame, and maintain conflicts that were going on. And I do think that, I th that Kadyrov's success over the years in, in effect, blackmailing Moscow was, and I have no evidence of this, but uh, nonetheless, this is, this is my, my thinking, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why Prigozhin thought he could get away with his mutiny, that he thought it was within the sort of the acceptable rules of the game. Obviously, he was wrong, as, as he was to discover. But now we have a whole variety of other conflict entrepreneurs who are on the whole not kind of big names. And I think this is going to be a really important point that I'll be coming to. But nonetheless, who actually are finding reasons why this war for them, unlike the rest of the elite, is good for business. First of all, and most obviously, sort of mercenaries. There is a whole slew, as I've mentioned, of smaller private military companies, mercenary organizations emerging. Now, these are not like Wagner. They are not, in effect, ones in which power and money connect. People like Alek Deripaska and Gennady Timchenko, the, 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 the big-name oligarchs, you know, they may well be helping fund, for example, the mercenary organization Redut, but Redut is managed by the Ministry of Defense. You know, Deripaska and Timchenko are not handing out directly their cash and the payments to mercenaries like Roman Empire emperors trying to buy the loyalty of the Praetorian Guard. Really, this is more than anything else like a tax. They have done very well out of the Putinist system, and so the Putinist system is now saying, OK, now we're in a bit of a crisis. It's your time to show your loyalty reach into your pockets and essentially pay for alternative means of raising extra warm bodies for the front. So they're not directly involved, but there are those making money out of this process. That they are running, for example, the recruitment exercises. They are managing the finances. I mean, these new smaller mercenary companies do seem to be what in the West we would describe as public-private partnerships. 
in which the state gets what it wants, but that there are private sector individuals who are also involved and who clearly expect to make a profit themselves. The Ministry of Defence is by no means doing it all. And there are new players also coming into this whole business sector. I mean, Alexander Kinstein, who is a parliamentarian who used to be Roskvardia's kind of ideologist in residence, quite frankly. Anyway, he's pushing a bill at the moment which would allow the National Guard the same rights as the Ministry of Defence to found and support territorial protection units and, in effect, private military companies as well. And there was even talk that, in fact, the Roskvardia, rather than the Ministry of Defence, might provide a sort of a new home for Wagner. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to happen at this stage. But anyway, according to one account, Prigozhin's son, Pavel, had actually met with Viktor Zolotov and also uh, one of the you know, senior Wagner commanders, Anton Elizarov, who goes by the call sign Lotus and is well, another one of those figures rumoured to potentially be one of Prigozhin's possible successors if Wagner continues to be a single mercenary army. But anyway, the, the, the suggestion is that precisely they were sounding out Zolotov or Zolotov was sounding them out about moving Wagner directly un, under the, the Roskvardia. So, you know, the interesting thing is this is clearly identified as a burgeoning sector. Zolotov may not be the sharpest bayonet in the arsenal, but on the other hand, he has demonstrated a keen understanding of how he can take Roskvardia and in effect turn it also into a very powerful commercial enterprise, often by just simply using its power to squeeze out rivals, take over private security companies and the like. I've actually done, done a podcast on this as ever. I'll leave a link in the program notes. So I think in this respect, it, it is clear that although the Wagner model is dead and buried, Moscow is going to be very, very careful to ensure that there is no similar force with the kind of same degree of autonomy and the same degree of personalistic control as happened before. But on the other hand, there is going to be a rise of a whole generation of new mercenary companies and that provides clear economic opportunities for some people. But they obviously need them to be used. Second particular sector... Reconstruction. I mean, the reconstruction of the occupied territories. Um, one can question actually how far it's, it's, it's going and certainly the, the quality of construction. Yeah, but nonetheless, this is a big business. And even if the headline contracts do go to the big boys, people like the Rotenberg's Stroigas Montage Corporation, in practice, actually most of this gets farmed out to subcontractors. I mean, in some ways, this is a little bit like the same kind of model as we saw with the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics. That, again, big contracts, but in fact, the, the, the real work is done by others, and, and the big boys just simply sort of basically take their cut and try to avoid actually having to do any of the work. Now, Mariupol alone, for example, which was clearly totally flattened in the war, well, this year sums to the amount of over $1.2 billion dollars have been allocated. Some of it coming from local authorities across Russia, I mean, particularly like St. Petersburg, where the local governor Beglov has very much tried to shore up his political position by, by saying that he was sort of presenting himself as the saviour of, of Mariupol. But most of it comes from the Federal Budget's Special Infrastructure Project Fund, which in total, this is 377 billion rubles, which is at the moment, what, 4.5 four and three quarter billion dollars, something like that, for the period 2023 to 2025. So there is a lot of money in reconstruction. But the whole point is precisely that actually depends on destruction in the first place. Next sector where we're seeing conflict entrepreneurs emerging. Provision of everything that the military needs. Now, there's a huge amount of profiteering here. You know, we've had cases of, for example, uniform prices be trebling almost literally overnight. We have all kinds of deeply, deeply substandard equipment being provided. Now, look, this was a problem even before the war. Um, the, I mean, the last uh, real figure we had was some, some years back from the main military prosecutor who said that 40% of all procurement funds are actually embezzled. And we saw that in the early days of the invasion, 
with the notionally sort of scrambled high security radios where if you open up the carapace, the case, inside it's just a cheaper little Chinese walkie-talkie. Likewise, you know, the, the trucks which are meant to have tough all-weather off-road tyres that turn out to have, once again, common denominator, cheap Chinese junk on them which very quickly sort of starts to, to, to deflate and lacerate. This is not really changing. I mean, we've we still got quite a bit of evidence of, you know, everything from dud ammunition, and that's even before they start using North Korean ordnance, all the way through to precisely overpriced and under-effective, uh, you know, basic kit for ordinary soldiers. Remember, also, a lot of these ordinary soldiers are actually being, in, in practice, forced to buy their own stuff. One of the reasons why we often see a real hodgepodge of uniforms and equipment on Russian soldiers because essentially they're just sort of buying what they can and this creates all kinds of opportunities for, for, for military profiteering. Um, new companies that are just suddenly sort of springing up like mushrooms. Companies that are essentially acting as kind of drop shippers who just simply um, act as middlemen between a buyer and a largely Chinese but not exclusively um, provider. You know, and have no real care about quality control or, or, or anything else. So I mean, it, it is clear that there is a lot of money to be made if you are sufficiently ruthless and unpatriotic in not just providing for your own military, but screwing your military over. When the histories of the Ukraine war be written, I mean, I've already said that in some ways I regard Vladimir Putin as a Ukrainian secret weapon. Given the often foolish policies that he's imposed based on misunderstood or badly informed evidence. But likewise, I mean, actually, how far will it turn out to be Russians who, in effect, undermine their own nation's war effort, not because they're ideological saboteurs, but just simply because, in line with the basic ethos of the Putin era, they're just making their, a fast buck whenever they can. Let's not forget that the Chechen rebels were so often armed by Russians. Russian soldiers selling guns, Russian gangsters selling guns in larger numbers. I remember there was a point at which a particular jihadist front was looking to provide money to arm some, some extremist uh, Chechen elements, and they reached out first to Chechen organized crime groups in Russia, who refused because they had a, you know, a keen awareness of the fact that if there was even the slightest hint that they were supporting the rebels, the full might and malice of the Russian state would descend upon them. I mean, that had been made very clear to them. So they essentially decided that actually their business was too good to jeopardize by unnecessary examples of, of uh, patriotism. But in fact, what happened was it turned out to be Russian organized crime groups that were willing to, to take jihadist money to provide weapons to jihadist fighters to kill Russians. So, I mean, in that context, actual you know, profiteering within the provision and procurement of, of the military is hardly surprising, but it is one more little sort of secret weapon helping the Ukrainians in their fight for sovereignty. Next, well, let's not forget the Z bloggers, the, the social media commentators who who are not only getting the chance to indulge themselves online and acquire an audience that they could have never conceived of before, but they're also making big money on essentially advertising. There was a really interesting uh, report, again, I'll leave a link, from a BBC Russian service about how pretending to be hoteliers, they reached out to a couple of the especially prominent uh, war bloggers, Alexander Kotz and uh, Semyon Pegov, who goes by the name War Gonzo. Anyway, Kotz said that an advert will cost between 48 and 70,000 rubles, it's about 440 to 680 pounds, per post on his channel, depending on just how long the ad was, was kept at the top of his Telegram feed and so forth. Wargonzo, on the other hand, quoted the equivalent of £1,550 per post. Now, OK, this, this could perhaps have been like the starting point for haggling or whatever, but you know, if we take these figures for granted, given that these guys tend to post at least one advert a day, so let's just say one advert a day at those rates would mean that they have a potential income 
of between £13,000 and £46,000 per month. £46,000 per month compared to the Russian average wage of 66,000 rubles or £550 per month at that point. So, you know, again, there is a chance to make a hell of a lot of money largely by, by spreading rumour, misinformation, outright opinionated rants and the like. But again, only so long as there is a war. It's the war that gives them res relevance. It's the war that gives them traction on the audience and thus it's the, the war that gives them the opportunity to monetize it through their adverts and then indeed try and leverage that for higher goals, whether it's political or a position within the state's propaganda machine or whatever. Next, don't worry, there are only two more, are what we could call the substitutors. Sanctions, after all, deprive the Russian market of certain goods, machinery, services and the like. But in the process, what it does is it creates better markets for domestic supp suppliers who previously could scarcely compete on the grounds of quality or price. Now, they began benefiting from 2014 when you had the first round of sanctions and then equally important Russian counter sanctions banning the imports of certain things. And now they're doing even better because really China is their only real threat now. And often the Russian substitutors have the advantage of locality, they're local, but also specificity. I mean, one particular area that's been highlighted, for example, is railway equipment. And here you see, because Russia and China use different gauges, it automatically gives the Russians a, a certain advantage. So again, here we have industries which... Frankly, before, certainly before 2014, but in some cases before last year, were actually economically a little bit marginal because precisely they were unable to compete with outside providers. Now they have artificial monopolies or at least, shall we say, much, much less competitive markets to service. And they're doing very well indeed. But again, they're doing very well indeed so long as the sanctions regime in, is in place. And why is the sanctions regime there? Yes, of course, because of the war. And finally, I mean, the war has also allowed for all kinds of what we could think of as fire sale takeovers of Western assets. Now, we've seen, for example, companies that have either been essentially f have felt that they have had to leave the Russian market and in the process had to sell off their assets locally for clearly for very little. I mean, for example, you know, McDonald's sold its business within Russia to its largest franchiser. And the result was the Vkusnoitochna, uh, tasty, full stop, um, hamburger chain. I think they sold it for, I, I keep forgetting whether it's one dollar or one ruble, but either way, you know, a totally token price. Or increasingly what we're actually seeing is companies that didn't get out of the market quickly enough finding their assets taken over. I mean, for example, two foreign energy companies, well, they're, you know, this is the Finland's Fortum and Germany's Uniper, found that their Russian operations were basically brought under new management because they were trying to get out and in, instead the state decided to, to, to step in and basically take over and, you know, the, the new management, who is it linked to? Well, gosh, it's Igor Sechin, the uh, CEO of Rosneft and troll-in-chief within, I would say, the Russian political elite. But in the main, actually, the assets that are increasingly now being taken over by a variety of means, they're not actually going to the really big players, or at least not directly. I mean, if one looks, for example, at two more recent cases, there's the French dairy giant Danone, and then there's also Baltica, which is the Russian subsidiary of Denmark's Carlsberg brewery. Now, Danone is currently, the, the assets are being managed by Yakub Zakiev, who is a nephew of Ramzan Kadyrov. Whereas Baltica is, has gone under the control of you know, Putin's old friend, it has to be said, but also an industry veteran, Taimuraz Baloyev. Now, Yakub Zakiev, Taimuraz Baloyev. Do you know who they are? You may, but I suspect that the majority of the audience will not. Precisely, these are not the Deripaskas and the Rotenbergs of this system. They are very much in the second echelon. Now, 
maybe they're just there as temporary placeholders. I mean, Baloyev knows the business, but he is 70 years old. And the 34-year-old Zakiev, well, he doesn't really know the business, but this may well simply be an opportunity for him to basically get a chance to sit in the chair as an interim, as a kind of tryout, before some other interest takes over. But And many of these second echelon people, I mean, actually are acting as proxies for sanctioned oligarchs. But the point is that actually what we're increasingly seeing is precisely opportunities taken over businesses, whether it's in terms of Western assets or whether it's businesses within occupied territories, that are now going to a new generation, not the really big names, but, shall I say, second or even third rank people. You know, we, we've got cases like, you know, someone, another figure close to Kadyrov, who ended up picking up a factory in Mariupol, as well as shares in uh, local hypermarkets. We have seen sort of, you know, chains of coffee shops, all kinds of things. Just as we saw all kinds of assets in Crimea annexed back in 2014, I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, meant to be about 700 different real estate assets that was taken previously controlled by Ukrainians, primarily Ukrainian oligarchs, that were then redistributed to Russians. So actually, both the war itself, but since the Russians seem unlikely to take any new territories, that's less of a force. And more to the point, in the, the economic war between Russia and the West, because we have to recognize it, that's what it is, what we are seeing is new opportunities for people to, to snap up assets and mainly these are going to, as I say, second echelon people. Why? Well, this is, and I'm going to conclude on this, this is what the bigger implications of the rise of these different conflict entrepreneurs is. I suspect that there is a degree to which this is actually a conscious strategy of not feeling that you need to constantly reward the, the, the oligarchs, because frankly the oligarchs, either they're your mates and you're going to look after them anyway, or They've had their good times. It's now their time to put shoulders to the wheel somewhat because they know perfectly well that if they don't demonstrate their loyalty, then they may well not be oligarchs anymore, but may well find themselves impoverished, in prison, or mobilized, which would be ironic enough. This may well be an attempt to, in effect, try to buy the next political and business generation. Now, there's a limit to how many people can actually be brought on board. But by more or less suggesting, actually, up to now, you have felt left out. You have felt closed out of the real big time. Now we're willing to open the door to some of you. Dance for us, my pretties, dance. In other words, people have to show their loyalty to, to be able to take advantage of these new opportunities. And I think that, I mean, that is a classic... Putin political system manoeuvre. And I think it reflects an awareness of the limitations of control over the, the, the sort of A-listers and a desire to create a long-term support base. Because again, I think, you know, from Putin's point of view, I'm sure he's, he's sick and tired of the position, but I don't think he feels he can step down, not now, not without some kind of a genuine victory that he can trumpet and allow him to, to basically feel protected by his own fame and his own success. Well, good luck with that. The point is then that if he's now thinking long term, if he's now thinking that essentially he's going to have to stay in office until he's dead or incapacitated, he needs to think beyond the 70-year-olds. And so I think this is going to be part of it. So I think, we, you know, this is, on the one hand, a political strategy to provide the, the system with a certain degree of longevity. But it also is speaking to something that is happening, which is that there is a generational or, can't really call it class, but shall I say stratum conflict within the system. That precisely that the 50-somethings and the 60-somethings, they're getting impatient, they're getting unhappy. And for most of them, this war has been bad for business. And so the attempt is to actually say, for some of you, actually this war's gonna be very, very good for business. Do you want to be in that elect? And if so, what are you going to do to prove your loyalty? And then once you have been let into the elect, you have every reason to keep the rest under control. Because after all, you have the most to lose. So I, I do think that this is, this is an important part of the sort of attempt to try to, to reshape the long-term dynamics of the Russian elite 
building it around the war. The war, after all, has become the organizing principle of Putinism. And certainly this, the system seems to be planning on a war that will last for a long time. And the final element of this is, as I sort of foreshadowed before, that it creates a constituency, even if it's a minority one, within the elite who benefit from the war because it enriches them, because it elevates them. Now, I genuinely believe that the majority of the elite are not fans of the war, not on moral grounds because it is bad for their business. However, just as the so-called turbo-patriots, the ultra-nationalists, have a disproportionate political impact because they are likewise disproportionately represented within the security apparatus, so to the conflict entrepreneurs, and there is a certain overlap between them and the turbo-patriots, they are going to be, I would say, particularly active in what we could think of as politically sensitive business, and they offer a particular opportunity for the system to preserve itself, that they too may acquire a disproportionate voice, and a voice that will probably be raised, so long as it's in their interests, for the preservation, if not necessarily of the war in Ukraine as such, but the wartime system, that sense that now Russia is in an existential struggle with the West, which is after all something that can actually outlast the actual fighting in Ukraine. Now in future episodes I plan to drill down into some of these particular constituencies of conflict entrepreneurs, raise some names of people who it's worth watching. But for now, I think, given that, wow, this has been a, an unduly long episode, um, I could think of this either as me unfairly taxing you, the poor listener, or that this is in some ways a recompense for the fact that I wasn't able to record a podcast last weekend. But nonetheless, I think it is time to end. On this note, let's watch what happens to Kadyrov. Let's watch what the conflict entrepreneurs do. Thanks very much. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>